Amen. You may be seated, everyone. Good afternoon. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have one, go with me to the book of Galatians chapter 3. The book of Galatians chapter 3. Um, we are in a vision series. A couple of weeks ago, we kicked off Vision Sunday and said we're going to be focusing on particular walls of hostility that need to come down in Jesus' name. Last week, we talked about the political wall of hostility. I realize that there's so much to say about, um, you know, politics and faith and what we're going to talk about today of the of race, the racial wall of hostility. Uh, last week, I wrote an article kind of as a, uh, to give, to flesh out further the sermon. And I think I'll, I'll probably do the same as well this week because there's just so much to say uh, and so much nuance that's required especially as we're talking about uh, walls of hostility, racial walls of hostility. And in early 2017, about March or so, we're going to have our annual racial reconciliation conference, which helps us to explore it, uh, all of the various facets and uh, layers of what does uh, you know, reconciliation look like, especially in the body of Christ and in our world. And so uh, at New Life, I like to say we should have a sign up front that says, enter at your own risk, uh, because we are inviting you to go places that you typically um, might not go on your own. And I think that's the case today as we talk about race and racial hostility in our country. And so let's pray. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us as we uh, enter into our passage this morning. Lord, thank you for uh, your presence in this place, for baptism stories of lives moving from death to life. And Lord, I pray that as I uh, preach some scripture today, that you would open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, that we would experience the life of God and know that we are ultimately a foretaste of what's to come when you fully and finally reign. And so we offer this time to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. This past week, I came across um, a, an interesting comedian uh, from years ago, a guy by the name of Emo Phillips, and he wrote a joke that uh, about divisions among Christians, divisions among Christians. And GQ magazine apparently named it the 44th funniest joke of all time. And so I read it and I said, man, I got to share this thing here. And so uh, the guy says, I was walking across a bridge one day and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump off. And so I ran over and said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, he asked. Well, there's so much to live for. Like what? Well, are you religious? He said, yes, me too. Are you Christian or Buddhist? Christian, me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant, me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist, wow, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? Baptist Church of God, me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God? Reformed Baptist Church of God, me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation 1879? Or Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation 1915? He said, Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation 1915. I said, die heretic, and I pushed them off the bridge. (laughs) 
I was laughing so hard this week with that, man. <laughs> now, this story, this joke captures the divisiveness that exists in our churches, that churches have a way of dividing over small things. Now, and if, if that's how we divide over small stuff, imagine how we divide over big stuff. And actually, we don't have to imagine it because we live that reality. And there might be no greater point of division and hostility uh, than matters of race. And so there's major racial hostility, walls of racial hostility that exist in churches and in our country and around the world. And yet over the past couple of weeks, we've given good news about the cross, that the cross of Jesus isn't just a bridge that gets us to God. It's a sledgehammer that breaks down walls that separate us, that there's no wall thick enough, too thick, that the cross of Jesus cannot break down. And we celebrate this reality that last week there are political walls that are thick, but in the name of Jesus, political walls can come down. And the same applies with racial walls of hostility. No matter how thick these walls are, these walls can come down. And so I realize as we talk about race and talk about racism and talk about all of the stuff here, that there are uh, different people in the room and a spectrum of interest as it pertains to this issue. And this is something that we've been wrestling with at New Life Fellowship for nearly three decades. And so um, I'm trying to add a little bit more to the conversation there. There are about a number of people in this room. For some of you, you might say, well, I have friends of all colors. And so uh, race is not an issue for me. Or maybe some of you, when you think about race, you say, uh, why do we have to keep talking about it? Why does it always come up over and over again? Can we just leave the past in the past? Some of you, when you think about race and racial hostility, you say, uh, you know, you're anxious. You don't know what to do. You don't know what to say. You might feel paralyzed, as it were. How do I respond? Or maybe this is something you've wrestled with all your life. You felt the burden of the racial hostility. And you only know burden. You only know the challenges of this. Or maybe you immigrated to this country. And you say to yourself, what does this have to do with me? This is your country. I just got here. This has nothing to do with me. But what we're going to see is no matter who you are, if you name yourself a Christian, this has to do with all of us. And the goal of this message is to get us to see uh, an expression of the kingdom of God. That when the kingdom of God really enters in and breaks through, what we begin to see is a reconciliation that takes place across any kind of barriers today across racial barriers. And so this past week, I was thinking about what, you know, what does it look like? What does, how do we know, what does it look like when, when the kingdom of God has broken in? And what are the signs of reconciliation? And I came across this, this uh, I created this sense of these words that give you a sense of what's kingdom reconciliation look like. And really it results in a diverse community that embraces their unique gifts and acknowledges the distinctive sins of their ethnic, racial, social makeup while experiencing loving communion with others under the lordship of Jesus. I'm talking about just the church. I'm not talking about the outer world. I'm talking about what does it look like for the church, that we, we celebrate the unique gifts. We acknowledge our distinctive sins, we're, and yet, yet we live in loving communion under the lordship of Jesus. And this is a, a, a beautiful picture, but to get there is a lot of work. To get there is a lot of work. And so when we see in our passage this morning, last for the past couple of weeks, we looked at Ephesians 2, that Ephesians 2 really serves as the umbrella text for us. That Paul says, but now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. 
by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. That's the passage that's served as the overarching passage for us. This is our passage this morning, this afternoon, Galatians 3, beginning in verse 26. It says, so in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Last week, I talked about the Corinthian church and said they were a church that had drama, lots of drama in that church. And this church today in the book of Galatians, they had their own share of drama. Paul didn't just have problems with one church. You see a theme. Paul had problems with a lot of churches in the New Testament. And if the Corinthian church mirrored kind of the political hostility we see where they were saying, I am of this leader, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ, their problems mirrored the political hostility we see in our world today. The Galatian church, their issues manifested or mirrored the racial hostility we see in our country. And so when we get to chapter 3, Paul is trying to settle some things theologically. That the Galatian church believed that in order to be followers of Christ, you had to trust Jesus, but trusting Jesus wasn't enough. These Jewish Christians believe you have to trust Jesus, but you also have to become Jewish as well. And so they put pressure on Gentiles to observe the law. They put pressure on them to be circumcised. They put pressure on them to eat according to the law. They put pressure on them to observe particular holidays. In short, the Jewish Christians wanted the Gentile Christians to be assimilated. And so in Galatians, to keep the law wasn't just about doing good deeds. It was about being a good Jew. And so trust Jesus, yes, but you got to become Jewish here. And your life needs the marks of Jewish identity. And so in the Jewish Christians' minds, in the book of Galatians, there is a two-tiered hierarchy. Jewish Christians up here, everyone else down here. The Jewish, they, they had their own sense of God chose us, everyone else, he chose you, but he chose you later. <laughs> he chose us first. And so Paul writes to a church that is steeped in a deep kind of ethnic supremacy. And this kind of superiority strained their relationships in the church. Now, I find it fascinating that these people uh, still had these problems after they became Christians. It wasn't like they became Christians and then these problems dissolved. And what we begin to see in our world is that you can be Christian and the problem is still there. Sometimes the problem is even worse. And some of the worst kind of racism that we've seen is racism that has been baptized in the name of Jesus. And we have seen it historically in this country uh, throughout the years. And so the fact remains, and this reminds us that you can be fully in Christ, but not have the life of Christ fully in you. You could be in Christ, and yet there's still lots of work for us to do. And this passage is helpful because it shows us a mirror of our own ethnic and our own racial tensions in the church and outside of it. And one thing's for sure, there are some deep racial tensions in our world. Deep racial tensions in our country. 
deep racial tensions in their church. Now, when we think of racism, we think immediately perhaps of like the KKK, and we say, because I'm not lynching anyone, because I'm not participating in that kind of craziness, uh, this is not really a big issue for me. And yet it's important to speak about this issue of racism and race, racial hostility with, uh, with a lot of nuance because there's, it's so multi-layered and so multifaceted. And so when we think about racial hostility, you must look at it from at least two perspectives, a very large perspective and a very local personal perspective. The first way to see racial hostility is in the form of institutional racism, uh, systemic racism. And this is about the way that power is used or uh, misused to give advantages to some and disadvantages, disadvantages to others. And in this country, uh, historically, uh, those who have experienced this kind of institutional racism have been people of color. And so uh, Michelle Alexander, she writes this book, The New Jim Crow, which is a perfect example of this, where she talks about mass incarceration. And she talks about the disproportionate uh, statistics of people of color experiencing this form of mass incarceration. And it's really, it's, an, it's a result of this kind of institutional racism. When you look at police brutality in our country, that for all the good work that officers do uh, in our city, in our church here, in our country, that there still remains a system at work that gives advantages or, or, or disproportionately uh, treats people in particular ways. We see uh, institutional racism at work in how resources are used or not used in particular neighborhoods. Uh, growing up in East New York, grew up in East New York for over three decades, and um, uh, in the 70s, 80s, 80s and 90s, it, it was a very hard place to live very difficult place to live. And yet this is the place where I grew up. And uh, I played basketball, IS-302, and, and, and right in the courts there outside. And, and over the last uh, 10 years or so before I moved to Queens, the basketball courts that I grew up playing in fell into incredible disrepair. Uh, the concrete, I mean, uh, it was just awful. And no one could play there anymore. They actually shut it down. And so for 10 years, for the last 10 years before I left or so, this court was in disrepair. No one played on the court, which is a problem for the youth in the neighborhood. There's not a place that they can play. And, and yet, uh, a couple of years after I left East New York, uh, the neighborhood, if you're following the news, is beginning to change in Brooklyn. And East New York is one of the kind of like the last places in Brooklyn that's being really affected by this. And because of gentrification and because of the way that neighborhoods are changing, what we begin to see is when new people start moving in, things start changing. And what began to change? There's a new court that's coming. Now let me ask you, did they make the court for the kids that are there or did they make the courts for the kids that are coming? That's the question we have to wrestle with when we talk about institutional racism. And so on one perspective we, we, of racial hostility, you cannot look at it just as an individual way. You must look at it from a systemic and institutional way as well. And if we don't look at both perspectives, we're going to miss a massive uh, piece of this conversation. And so this institutional racism is number one. But the second piece of racial hostility that we must wrestle with is individual racial prejudice. And this affects everyone. Everyone has an individual racial prejudice. We've been socialized uh, to see people in a certain way. And this is a problem for all of us. Many of us grew up in families and in cultures that saw people a particular way, that labeled people in a particular way. And this is fascinating because not only is it labeling people who don't look like you in a particular way, this individual racial prejudice even impacts people who look like each other. And so growing up, 
in high school, if you wanted to get in a fight in high school, I'm so happy we, we, we baptized two Dominicans here. Uh, as a Puerto Rican, it, so many fights happen by saying to a Puerto Rican, are you Dominican? And vice versa, asking a Dominican, are you Puerto Rican? And for whatever reason, they're fighting. I'm like, what's happening? What's, what's, why are they fighting in high school there? Oh, they, they call that person. He's Puerto Rican. They call him. We can have individual racial prejudice against people who look like us, let alone people who don't look like us. Growing up in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, I realized I had racial prejudice, as we all do, some, but with white people, because I really didn't have any encounters with white people really until college. And the only uh, time that I would see white people in my neighborhood in East New York was for three reasons. Number one, because you were an undercover cop. That's number one. Number two, because you were looking for drugs. Number three, because you were lost. <laughs> and so I say, bro, you, you're lost. I mean, let me swipe you back in. Get back on that train, bro. Just, just <laughs> quick, get back on there. Uh, you, you must be lost. And, and through my lack of experience, right, with, with white folks, uh, you know, my mind is shaped a certain way to see them. And we all have our individual racial prejudice against white folks, against black folks, against Asian folks, Latino folks. What, across the board, we have our own individual uh, racial prejudice. And so whether we're talking about institutional racial uh, racism or we're talking about individual racial prejudice, the word of God in this passage is to help us to intentionally reject any kind of superiority or any kind of inferiority. This is what the passage in Galatians 3 is doing. It's teaching us to reject any kind of superiority and any kind of inferiority. And the gospel reminds us that we are to treat others as equals. Why? Because we are. Because we, are, we, we stand before God as equals. And that is to shape our experience as we live in the world. And the gospel is about working for a world that is to reflect the kingdom that is to come. And this is what Paul is getting at in Galatians chapter 3. And so Paul uses the language to, to get at this, the, the crazy divides that were in the local church there in, the, in, Galatia, in, in Galatia. And he basically says to them that you have been baptized. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And what Paul is saying in that is that, that in baptism, something happened to us. That you no longer belong to yourself. And you no longer belong to the world, but you belong to Jesus. And that baptism is to shape our identity and the way that we live in the world. He says, you, have, you, are, you, be, you are to be clothed with Christ. And when it comes to conversations and issues of racial hostility, it's very easy for us to be clothed with our culture and clothed with our family of origin. But he says, you are to be clothed with Christ. You are baptized into Christ. Your identity ultimately is in Christ. You belong to Jesus. And then after belonging to Jesus, he says these words. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Now, when Paul says this, uh, if we were to apply this to the issue of, of race, uh, 
you know, we, we are to be clothed with Christ, obviously, but what Paul is advocating here is not for a sense of like a colorblindness. If he were to apply this verse here to the, the racial hostility, Paul would not be applying it to colorblindness. Sometimes I hear uh, pastors say, there's no such thing as a black church. There's no such thing as a white church. There's no such thing as an Asian church, a Latino church, etc." And they use this verse to justify it, but this verse is not about being colorblind. For many people, to be colorblind is seen as a virtue, but it's not a virtue in the kingdom of God. People say, well, I don't see color, I see people. And that's nice. Really, that's really sweet. But you know who sees color? God sees color. In the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9, he says, And I behold, I saw at the throne of God, I saw people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people, that we take our ethnicity into eternity, uh, that we don't just become some just, uh, 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 we don't dissolve our identity. We take our ethnicity into eternity. And so what Paul is not talking about is colorblindness. What Paul is talking about is something else. When Paul writes that there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, Paul is talking not, let's say, in our context of necessarily of, of skin color. He's talking about the issue of superiority. He's saying we have to get over a sense of superiority. And notice how Paul does it. He joins people who are historically uneven in power, and he joins them together. First, he says there's neither Jew nor Gentile. The Jew is the one who experienced the, the, the religious power. They were the people of God. And Paul says, if you are in Christ, any kind of superiority has to come down. He says, uh, they're neither slave nor free. The free is up here. The slave is down here. He says, in the world, you might relate to the slave in this way, but in the body of Christ, that changes. There's no sense of superiority. This is why when we come into the body of Christ, we don't come with our degrees. We don't come with our titles, with our jobs. We don't come here showcasing, so what do you do, you do in your job and your degree? We don't come in here trying to give one leg up over the other person. We come here because we're one in Christ. And so Paul says, you're slave nor free. Then he says, male nor female. In a patriarchal culture, this is radical what Paul is saying in, in the book of Galatians. For a patriarchal culture, he's saying that kind of superiority needs to come down because now we are all equal in Jesus' name. And so he takes this, this sense of uh, superiority and inferiority and he says, this needs to be wiped away. And that's what the cross does. The cross... Um, humbles those who live with a sense of racial and ethnic superiority, and it exalts those who live with a sense of racial and ethnic inferiority. And so we see this balance. These, the, the cross is about equalizing. The cross is about there's no more uh, hierarchy. We are all one in Christ. Now, that's good theology there. Now, what does it look like on Monday? <laughs> what does all this look like? How do we flesh this out? How do we as a church work for what the kingdom of God is going to look like when Jesus Christ fully and finally reigns? How do we witness and bear witness to a world that's ra radically and racially hostile towards each other? How can we begin to offer a different way forward? That when people see our conversations, that when people see our interactions, that when people see our life, they say that is, that's a community, that's a people from another world. And we are to be a, a people from another world. We are 
from the world that's to come. We're just here. And so last week, I, I mentioned seven signs of, of how do you know Jesus is Lord in a politically hostile culture. And um, I wanted to list out seven because I had a sense that it's so multifaceted and so multilayered. Um, I, I want to give as much as possible. And every point from that seven last week could have been a sermon in itself. And as I thought about this week as well and the, the multifaceted nature of this kind of conversation, I thought, let me do the same thing and, and try to give you seven signs as well. So that's what I want to do. I want to give you just seven signs. What does this look like tomorrow for us? That we have the theology of there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We're one in Christ. That's great. What does it look like to live this out now in the United States amidst a lot of racial hostility? Let me offer seven things and then we're, we're going to take communion together. Number one, if we're going to work for reconciliation in our world. Um, number one, there must be a deep commitment to listening, even when it's hard. A deep commitment to listening, even when it's hard. I put this first because if we can't do this, we're not going to do the rest of it. So it makes no sense if I give you two, three, four, five, six, and seven. If we can't get over the first one, we're not going to do the rest of it. And so we must have a deep commitment to listen, even when it's hard. Now, often when it comes to conversations of race, our level of offendability often re reveals our level of maturity. So when we listen, often we get offended or defensive. And oftentimes our level of offendability and how defensive we get often reveals the level of our maturity. And so to listen well, I knew life, this is why we talk about life beneath the surface. Because to listen well means that you are aware, self-aware of your triggers, self-aware of your emotional allergies, self-aware of the kind of people that make you feel a little uneasy. And if we're not uh, aware of this, we're going to do more damage than good. And so it, it, to listen well requires a self-emptying, requires us to be incarnational requires us to step into the world as someone else and by the grace of God to patiently listen. And this is what the church is to be. The church is to be a listening community. One that where we are hearing of the experiences that we are faced with and at the same time offering each other faithful presence, listening to one another. I want to nuance this a little bit though because although we are to listen to one another, um, the one who needs to listen first in, racial, in terms of racial hostility and listen more often are those who have experienced the privilege of power. And that's really important. Those who need to listen first and often, uh, more often is, are those who have experienced the privileges of power. And so racial reconciliation requires a self-emptying of power and control. Philippians 2, Jesus empties himself. That word is kenosis. He empties himself. And the onus on those with power and have enjoyed the privileges of power is to lead the way in listening. It doesn't mean you're not going to receive, have someone listen to you, but it means that we lead the way in listening. And so in this country, the rich must listen to the poor. And often it's the voice of the poor that we don't want to hear. 
But those that have some kind of economic means need to learn how to listen to the poor. That men need to learn how to listen to women. Every service, every service, every service. I got to that point, and amen. I was just like, amen. I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm listening. That those who have experienced the privilege of power must listen first. Doesn't mean that men are not going to be hurt, but it just means that men need to lead the way in listening first and listening more often. That when it comes to racial hostility in this country and our history, that white folks need to learn to listen first and more often when it comes to racial hostility. It doesn't mean that white people are not going to be listened to afterwards, but white folks have experienced the, and enjoyed the privileges of power. And so they must listen first and more often. This is the way of the cross. This is the way of self-emptying. How can someone who does not have any kind of power be emptied? There's, no, there's nothing to be emptied of. It's those who have experienced the privileges of power they need to empty. That's number one. And so we must begin with a deep commitment to listening. Secondly, uh, how do we work for reconciliation? Well, uh, there must be in this country an honest wrestling with the history of racial oppression in our country. That we cannot co correct what we will not confront. And that has application across the board, especially when it comes to racial hostility. That you can't understand the current experience of racial hostility in this country without also honestly facing the history of racial oppression, first experienced by Native Americans, and slavery above African-American people, and racial discrimination that's taken throughout the centuries. We just can't get over it. And at New Life, we talk a lot about genogram. We talk about, a lot about going backwards to go forward. That you cannot change your direction going forward if you don't understand how you got here in the first place. And that genogram is not just for our individual development. The genogram is also for how do we navigate through conversations of race as well. And so we say, I, I just want to forget the past. Well, how can we forget the past when the past has brought us to where we're at right now? And it's going to inform what we're doing in the future. And so, you know, when we, when we hear about the horrific things that happened in this country, for example, 9-11, uh, every year we say never forget. And horrific, obviously the biggest, you know, tragedy in our country here. And every year I join with the multitudes in saying, never forget, never forget, never forget. But that's not the only thing we are never to forget. We are also never to forget the impact of slavery and what got us here in the first place. And so we cannot move forward without an honest wrestling of the history of racial oppression in our country. A third is this. How do we work for rec uh, reconciliation? Well, there must be a, a cultivation of language and a practice of grief and lament. That we learn how to grieve and lament. And the challenge for many of us is we don't even feel our own pain. How can we enter into the pain of others? And so much of new life is about how do we look beneath the surface of our lives to access the areas that we tend to overlook. Our pain, our grief, our sadness, our anger. How do we access that and sense God and experience God in that? And in the process, how do we now enter into the space with others and lament with them and grieve with them? But Pastor Rich, the Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And at the same time, there's the book called Lamentations. 
And two-thirds of the Psalms are Psalms of grief and lament. And so which is it? Yes, that's the answer. Which is it? Yes, it's both. And until we begin to enter into the grief and pain of what others have experienced, we're not really reflecting the kingdom that's to come. Jesus models Jesus, the incarnation. Jesus, he incarnates into our reality. He feels what we feel. And as the people of God, we are to enter into uh, and cultivate the practice of grief and lament as well. We are to feel what others feel. Feel what we feel as well. Number four, how do we work towards reconciliation? Well, there must be a personal acceptance and appreciation of your ethnic culture. How can you be reconciled to others when you're not first reconciled to yourself? How can you appreciate others when you don't appreciate yourself? How can you celebrate others when you don't celebrate yourself and who God made you to be? The book of Revelation, as I mentioned, says that our ethnicity is taken into eternity. That God doesn't dissolve who we are. That it is taken into eternity. And so we better start getting used to being comfortable in our own skin. Because the world doesn't end with us being disembodied in heaven. The world ends with the resurrection. Amen. The resurrection. That's God's final word. And God's final word is, if, if, you don't, if you don't like who you are right now, you're going to have an eternal problem. <laughs> and so, uh, we need you to be you. And who God created you to be. We are to resist this sense of self-hatred. This sense of embarrassment of our own cultures. That we, 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 we say no to those things that are inconsistent with the kingdom of God, and yet we cherish those and celebrate those things that are gifts from God. And we need you to be you. In some countries, uh, in Asia, we've seen uh, some women get uh, eyelid surgery because they want to look like Westerners. And there's been a lot of uh, conversation and back and forth around that, and many people have been grieved by it. Because they're saying, why can't you be you? And who God created you to be. Why are you trying to be somebody else? And God has created you to be you. And many of us have believed in a lie that says that there's an ideal way for a human being to look. That there's an ideal uh, type of hair. That there's an ideal complexion. That there's an ideal uh, facial uh, 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 expressions or facial uh, features. And we have said, that's what's ideal, and whatever doesn't fit in there, I must adjust accordingly. No, you are beautifully and wonderfully and fearfully made. (laughs) And the sooner you're reconciled with yourself, the sooner and better we can be reconciled with somebody else. And so reconciliation is about personal acceptance and appreciation of who God created you to be. It doesn't stop there. Number five is, how can we do this without a deep spirituality of prayer? The principalities and powers are so deep. And if we think we can do this by just reading a couple of books and applying some new practices, we need God. 
We need, there are powers and principalities at work. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities and spiritual wickedness in high places. If we think we can do this without God, we are mistaken. It is not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that means we need to cultivate a deep spirituality of prayer. Why do we talk about silence all the time and prayer? Pastor Richard, silence again and solitude again and prayer again and Sabbath again. Why? Because I know how deep the problem is. And if we think we can deal with this problem without God, we are gravely mistaken. And when it comes to racial hostility, the government surely isn't going to fix it. We need power from on high. We need God. Not by power, nor by my, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We need a deep spirituality of prayer. We talk about rhythms of prayer throughout the day. Not just so you can have a great time. There are walls that need to come down. Number six. And this is all, this, this could be a seven-week sermon here. This is like so much to say here. Number six, how we grow in racial reconciliation? Well, we grow in awareness of our own racial bias. That we all have racial bias. That we've been taught consciously and unconsciously how to see people. Unless we are aware of our racial bias, the more harm we can potentially do. Racial bias happens when we refuse to choose a doctor on the basis of their last name and whether you can pronounce it. And we make assumptions. We see the name on the internet and we say, ah, that person probably doesn't speak English. <laughs> right, uh, right. <laughs> Racial bias happens when we see someone walking down the street and we cross the street and make judgments. This past week, I, uh, I was in the library and I was working on a message and an African-American man walks in, and he might have been homeless, I'm not sure, um, but he walked in, and I looked at him, and I see him looking for something. He's walking around like this here. And immediately, a, a racial bias is kicked up. And I started looking at him already. He just walked in for five seconds, and I'm already looking at him in a particular way. And I started looking at how other people are looking at him in this way, in this library. And all he was looking for was a, an outlet to plug in his phone. His phone was out, and that's what he was looking for. And he plugged it in and he sat down. And I, can, I, I, I was still looking at him and other people looking at him. I just realized I have already made a, a set of assumptions in five seconds about this guy. And I could choose right now to go down this road of who I think this guy is. Or I can choose to see him with a different set of eyes. And we have to be aware of our own racial bias. We've been, Rosie and I have been the recipients of racial bias. When we moved to Queens, uh, the day before we moved into our apartment, we wanted to clean up the apartment, and then we were going to move into furniture. And so we spent a lot of time just cleaning it up there, and then we were going to drive back to Brooklyn. We were driving, about to drive back. We had, you know, buckets and mops and everything like that. And as Rosie's about to put it into the car, a lady chases her down and says, excuse me, are you the cleaning lady? Because <laughs> I'm looking for someone. And Rosie said, no, we're moving in. And I was so angry. I was so angry. 
because she's Latina and she has a bucket, you think that's what she does. We all have our own bias. And unless we are aware, this is why we need prayers, why we need uh, deep spirituality, that we're moving beyond the scripts that the culture has given us about other people. Ultimately, how do we work for reconciliation? Well, lastly, it's we need regular repentance, regular confession, regular forgiveness. Regular repentance, regular confession, regular forgiveness. That from time to time, we're going to make mistakes. From time to time, we're going to say the wrong thing. From time to time, we're going to make the wrong judgments. But we come as the body of Christ knowing that every day we need to repent. Every day we need to confess. That every day we need to receive and offer forgiveness. Because this racism is so deep in our culture that from time to time we're just going to get it wrong. And that's what it means to be human. But what it means to be godly is that when we get it wrong, we confess and repent and receive and offer forgiveness. This is what the world is longing for. A world that is to come when Jesus Christ fully and finally reigns. And one of the ways that we demonstrate the reconciliation that takes place is when we take communion together, which is what we're gonna do in a moment. When we come to the table, we come to the table from many different backgrounds, and we come to one table, we come in the name of one Lord. We celebrate together this feast, that we take bread and dip it in the cup, and we are reminded that because Christ has done something In us, Christ has done something for us. He has broken down the wall of hostility. What we have to do now is just walk on through. And one of the ways that we walk through is by taking communion together. Everything I said today is not easy. Man, it's impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. Some of you might say, listen, Rich, the problems of the world are so massive, but with God, nothing is impossible. Rich, did you see what happened in the news and what's happening there? Yes, but nothing with God, nothing is impossible. We, we serve a God who is risen from the dead. And because he's risen from the dead, our world can be risen from the dead as well. Amen, amen. Let me invite you to close your eyes. Those who are going to be offering communion to come to the tables. I want to give you a moment for your own private confession and repentance before God. And then we'll pray a prayer of confession together. Maybe one of these seven uh, resonate. You sense the Holy Spirit speaking to you. You realize that God is not done with you. That God wants to continue to see you shaped and formed in the way of Jesus. So for the next couple of seconds, just offer your own repentance before God, and I'll lead us in a prayer of confession together.
Amen. Let me invite you all to stand. Let's pray this prayer of confession before we come to the table. And when you take the bread and dip it in the cup, go back to your seat. And just hold it there and I'll come back and I'll lead us to take, to take it together. But as the people of God, let's, let's confess as the people of God uh, together before the presence of Jesus here. Together, let's read this. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you through our own fault, in thought, in word, in deed, in what we have done, in what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he also took the cup. And after supper, gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's all take together. Amen. I want to invite our prayer team to come to my right. And um, for those of you that you sense God calling you to maybe a deeper commitment to overcoming racial hostility, you need prayer. Maybe the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you today. You just need someone to pray with you. For whatever need you have, uh, we would love to, to pray for you. But as we close, listen, we're called to be a sign of what's to come. We are, we are the future in the present. We are a sign of the kingdom of God. And so may God shape us, inform us in the way that we should go. Let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. And we end with blessing, receiving blessing so that we may offer it, that we will be a presence of blessing wherever we go. And so with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May he shine his face upon you and fill you with peace. May you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit as ambassadors of reconciliation. That wherever Jesus sends you this week, may you be his ambassador to bring an end to racial hostility. And so I bless you all today in the strong, the beautiful and the reconciling name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.